are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Wednesday, December 2nd. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Sweetland Garden Mercantile in North San Juan on the Ridge, offering organic compost tea and soil, bloom and trim supplies, also household tools. 292-9000, sweetlandgm.com, dig it. Booktown Books, an independent cooperative bookstore since 1998, featuring nine independent vendors offering used, rare, and collector's items, including music, DVDs, vinyl, and art. Open daily, Bank Street, Grass Valley, booktownbooks.com. And Mise Eatery, family-owned organic conscious foods on Mill Street, Grass Valley, offering Mediterranean Middle Eastern cuisine, locally farmed ingredients for daily scratch-made pitas, falafel, baba ganoush, hummus, and salads, online pre-order recommended, mezeeatery.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery talks with Nick Reddy, Program Manager for Nevada County's Child Welfare Services, about the Giving Tree Project. Gretchen Bond with the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce talks about this year's holiday activities in Nevada City. A Georgia election official is blasting the GOP for its silence on the election threats, NPR reports. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabain with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you The Sages Among Us, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The United Kingdom has approved an American-made vaccine for the coronavirus, making it the first Western nation to greenlight the shots. NPR's Richard Harris reports the FDA is close, but has yet to approve the vaccine developed by pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. The United Kingdom's equivalent of the FDA moved quickly to approve the Pfizer vaccine, and that has raised some questions about the speed of the U.S. process. But Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar praised the U.K.'s decision. The approval of another independent regulatory body should give Americans additional confidence in the quality of such a vaccine. The FDA has another week of work to go before a public meeting next Thursday. Approval could come shortly after that. Operation Warp Speed officials say for planning purposes only, they've picked December 15th as the date when the first doses could ship to the 50 states and to federal agencies, such as the Department of Veterans Affairs. Richard Harris, NPR News. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has an urgent appeal to residents of his city. Please give blood. As NPR's Sally Hershop reports the city has a critical shortage. Hospitalization rates in New York are soaring due to the coronavirus, but at the same time, the city is down to just a three-day supply of blood. That's about half of what the mayor says New York needs. So the city has launched an appeal to try to get New Yorkers to donate, and it's even offering prizes, like a tour of the Empire State Building. De Blasio says the goal is to get 25,000 New Yorkers to donate. NPR's Sally Herships. An investigation by NPR is raising new questions about a company that provided coronavirus tests to three state governments. As NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports, legal experts have flagged concerns about stock sales by leaders of that company. Co-diagnostics provided tests to Utah, Iowa, and Nebraska. And just as questions about its tests' accuracy were swirling in May... 
Two of the company's board members sold almost a million dollars worth of stock each. Investors often see that as a warning sign, so federal law requires that they disclose those sales within two business days. But NPR found that these board members did not disclose some of their sales for about two weeks. Daniel Taylor is a professor at the Wharton Business School. That's an outlier, an extreme outlier. An attorney for co-diagnostics said there's no evidence the board members acted with, quote, illicit intent. But in response to NPR, the company said it would disclose the delinquent filings to the federal government. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. Democratic congressional leaders are getting behind a bipartisan COVID-19 relief effort, cutting their demands for a $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill more than in half in hopes of breaking a month-long logjam. This held up further relief for millions of Americans. New proposed plan would establish a $300 a week jobless benefit and also send $160 billion to help state and local governments. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 59 points. This is NPR. Rayford Johnson, a legendary Olympic athlete and humanitarian, has died at the age of 86. In 1960, Johnson was considered the world's greatest athlete after winning the only Olympic decathlon competition. NPR's Tom Goldman has more. Eight years after winning Olympic gold, Rayford Johnson helped subdue Robert F. Kennedy's assassin at a Los Angeles hotel. Extraordinary events, but they were just part of his rich, eventful life. The son of black farm workers, Johnson developed into a supreme athlete and student. At UCLA, he was student body president, played basketball for legendary coach John Wooden, and was dominant in the multi-event decathlon. After his 1960 Olympic victory, he went on to act in movies, helped start the California Special Olympics lit the flame at the 1984 L.A. Summer Games. Through it all, Rayford Johnson impressed with his graciousness and humility. He was, said 1984 Olympic organizer Peter Uberoff, a marvelous human being. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Those various types of service animals that for a period were allowed on U.S. airplanes, everything from miniature horses to monkeys, no more apparently with the U.S. Transportation Department saying going forward only trained dogs will qualify. The airlines can still choose to allow other species if they want, but the rules issued today are expected to resolve years of disputes over people who have falsely claim pets as emotional support animals, allowing them to travel in airplane cabins with little oversight. Airlines can charge as much as $175 to transport pets. Those charges would not apply to designated service animals. The new rules take effect in 30 days. This is NPR. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight will be partly cloudy with a low around 40. Thursday will be mostly sunny with a high near 59 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 38. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 39. Thursday will be sunny with a high near 64 and an overnight low around 37 with mostly clear skies. In Truckee tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 18. Thursday will be sunny with a high near 47 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 18. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 44. Thursday will be mostly sunny with a high near 63 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 42.
I'm speaking with Nick Reddy. He's program manager for Nevada County's Child Welfare Services. And uh, Nick, uh, we've talked before in the past, but today we're going to talk about the Giving Tree Program. And tell our listeners about it. So the Giving Tree Program is something that Nevada County Child Welfare started back in 2008 um, as a way to make sure um, that our kids that are in foster care and the families that we're working with got their needs met during holidays. And so what we did is created these trees, and they have tags on them that kind of have non-identifiable in terms of names or anything like that, but kind of general information about gender, age, and a wish list. And it was a way for the community to kind of help out and recognize the need that some of our foster kids have. So like I said, we started back in 2008, uh, and we had a short hiatus with it in 2012, and we started the program back in 2014 and been doing it ever since. It's a great program. It's a great manner in which the community can help support and respond to the needs for our most vulnerable kids in the community. On average, we, the Giving Tree serves about 70 to 80 foster kids a year and about 100 families. So it's a great way for all of our uh, foster kids and parents to know that the community cares about them. They recognize that they're in need, and it's just a great way to help. So this is a, kind of a long tradition for Nevada County. It is, yeah. You know, um, historically we have partnered with other agencies, uh, but we really wanted to make sure that our families and the kids in our care got the help, the assistance, and the care that they needed. So we started decided to take it in-house to ensure that our uh, foster kids and families um, got what they needed and got the support they needed. Let's talk a little more about the history. Uh, you say, uh, how far does it go back? In the... so, yeah, so um, I started with the county back in 2008, which is when the program originally started. And I'm, uh, my assumption was prior to me working here that through the years, um, some of the kids maybe were getting some of their needs not met or that programs that we were partnering with kind of had a broad range in terms of kids that they were serving. And we really wanted to make sure that our kids, given the current circumstances that they were in or facing, were getting their needs met, getting, you know, presents on holidays and Christmas and that kind of thing. And so we decided to, the only way to make sure that happened was to do it in-house. And so we created the Giving Tree Program, which is a way to kind of get out the needs of our um, foster kids and families to the community in a way that doesn't um, show who, you know, giving kind of specific identifying information, but identifies the needs that they have. It's a way for the community to respond to that. And um, it's been incredibly successful um, since we started um, back in 2008. How, how, now how can people participate in this? What we do um, is we, throughout Nevada County, we have six Giving Tree um, Location. So we have two in Nevada City. One is at the Eric Root Administrative Center. Um, that tree is going up this afternoon. And um, the other one is at the Nevada County Courthouse. And then we have four locations in Grass Valley, the Brighton Greens Resource Center, Caroline's Coffee, South Yuba Club, and the Training Zone. And um, people are welcome to come to those locations. And they, all they do is simply take a tag that will have um, the age, gender, and the wish list of the foster child or family. They can go out and purchase the gifts that are identified on the tag, and then they can bring them back unwrapped. We um, go to the trees daily to get the gifts, to wrap them up, and make sure they get to where they need to go. Um, recognizing that we are in unprecedented times with the pandemic and um, mobility throughout the county is limited at times. Um, we still want people to be able to help if they so choose. So they're more than welcome to call 
um, kind of the head of the Giving Tree program, Laura Charter. Her number is 530-265-1650, and she can provide a tag and uh, information over the phone to anybody that wants to help a kid, um, and that way we can get the information out and nobody has to come in if they don't want to. And when do they actually receive the gifts? So the last day um, for the department to receive the gifts from the Giving Tree is December 18th. And over that time, what we'll do is the department will wrap them up, get them all presented, and then within before Christmas, usually the week before, we will present the gifts to all the foster kids and families. So they make it, they make it uh, a priority to get the gifts out to all the um, families and foster kids prior to um, Christmas Day. Yeah. Once again, uh, contact information for people that might be interested in helping. Yeah, so, um, again, for uh, people who um, aren't able, um, who are kind of lack maybe mobility in terms of whatever reason because of uh, COVID and all that's going on, they're more than welcome to contact our point person. Her name is Laura Charter. She's been kind of heading up the Giving Tree program since 2008. And so we can con- you can contact her directly at 530-265-1650. And um, she can go over kind of the tags that are available provide the information to whoever's calling and they're more than welcome to go out and get the gifts and then they can either drop them off at the trees or if they're not comfortable with that or for whatever kind of restrictions they're more than welcome to call Laura and then we'll have somebody come out to get them for uh, get them for them well I've been speaking with Nick Reddy he is program manager of Nevada County's child welfare services and we've been talking about the giving tree program. It's a a great tradition for Nevada County, Nick, and thanks for keeping it all going. Absolutely. And then if I could just add another thing, um, you know, just for people that kind of give the gifts and may not for specific reasons be able to see the reaction or kind of see the kid's response or the family's response, it's incredible. And I just want to convey the fact that, you know, I could go over uh, dozens of specific stories of how this programs impact the kids for the betterment but just anytime we're able to present gifts to children and to families from complete strangers who have no idea who they are what they're going through but be able to show that the community cares this much that they're willing to help a family out on christmas that they don't know it's incredibly powerful it means the world to the county to child welfare and most importantly to the kids and the families that we serve so it's an incredible opportunity and it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much, Nick, and thanks for speaking with KVMR. Absolutely. I appreciate it. I'm speaking with Gretchen Bond, and Gretchen is the president of the board of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. And Gretchen, there's... um, this is, of course, a Christmas season like none we've ever had before, but we some things are happening and some new things that are happening. I want to ask you about the Lights Up Nevada City uh, program and, and idea. Uh, what is that about? Well, so we thought it would be really nice to do some extra special decorating in downtown Nevada City because we weren't going to be able to have the full-on traditional Victorian Christmas, which uh, lights up the town itself. Um, And so what we did was uh, we did a a GoFundMe fundraiser to raise money 
to support the holiday lighting and decorations, which um, will include things like fresh garland, wreaths, and swags um, that we um, have, have purchased locally. Um, and it also is going towards lighting up Callanan Park, which is one of the very first things that folks see when they drive into town up Broad Street in Nevada City. So this is uh, going to be something basically that people will drive through town and maybe see it like it's never been seen before. Yeah. Yes. The idea is that we're transforming it into something out of a Charles Dickens novel, you know, twinkling lights along the roof lines, festive flags lining the streets, fresh wreaths. I mean, our brick buildings look so beautiful when they're all lit up. Yeah. So uh, uh, are individual businesses all participating in this and then the chamber is kind of kind of leading the um, leading the action on it? Yes. Um, a lot of a lot of the buildings have uh, already been outlined with lighting. And so we just wanted to make sure that we completed the picture. Um, I think everybody knows that iconic vision, the iconic view of the uh, Methodist Church at the top of Broad Street. And, um, you know, the idea is for the town to be glowing and just absolutely beautiful all through the holiday season. Gretchen, I, I understand there's a GoFundMe uh, uh, project going on to help pay for this and to help support it. Uh, tell us about it. Yes, well, we started a GoFundMe um, to raise a, um, a minimum of $4,500 to pay for the, uh, you know, all of the decorations that we're doing. Um, we still have about $1,000 still to go. And I, I think everybody that's listening knows that traditionally when we do Victorian Christmas, we have a lot of vendors in town. And so uh, this year, because we are not having that, uh, the chamber is not really able to fund this themselves. So we were looking to the community to help uh, support the beautification of the town. Where can people get more information about this if they want to help out? So they can go onto the chamber Facebook page where they can find the GoFundMe fundraiser there. And they can donate from, from there, from the uh, chamber's uh, Facebook page. And they can also go on to the chamber's web, uh, website and find the GoFundMe there as well. And they're able to donate from there. Are there any other uh, things that are happening with the chamber in Nevada City that people should know about? Well, so while we can't have the traditional Victorian Christmas this year, we are having um, the Victorian holiday. And uh, we do have all of, of the, we have these really cute Dickens villages, little mini villages that are being, that are going to be on display in many of the storefronts in town. And a lot of the merchants have decided that they're going to stay open late. Not everybody, so it's a good idea to check. But uh, a lot of them have decided to stay open late on what traditionally is Wednesday of Victorian Christmas and Sunday of Victorian Christmas. So um, we're so that's an opportunity for people to come to town and shop. We're we're encouraging people to shop local, of course, this year. And uh, all of the merchants have. PPEs and they know how many people they are allowed to have according to the guidance in their shop so people can feel confident that they will be able to shop safely. People have made reservations to come to Victorian Christmas and so we expect there to be some people from out of town which will be nice but uh, we're mostly like trying to focus on um, people shopping locally and supporting our local businesses who've this is their biggest shopping time of the year. I mean, uh, we did a survey in August and the um, 
merchants came back and told us that they make uh, they average about twenty thousand dollars during the holiday season, which is a significant amount of money for our small businesses. So this is uh, is this starting when tonight? Tonight, tonight's the first night of Victorian Christmas, yes, and or Victorian holiday, and um, it will also continue on Sundays through. Let's see, it's it's this the second, ninth, and sixteenth of those are the Wednesday dates, and then the fifth, twelfth, and I'm sorry, the sixth, thirteenth, and twentieth of December for the um, Sunday. Victorian Christmas and we will have Santa and we will have music also on Sundays. We'll have outdoor music. Well, Gretchen, thanks a lot for updating us here at KVMR. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and to all the merchants in Nevada City. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. The president's false claims about the election have had real-world effects on election officials. Some have faced death threats and harassment. One official in Georgia spoke out against the president and also against the Republican senators who indulge and enable his falsehoods. Here's Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. Twice a day for the last several weeks, an unflappable gray-haired voting system implementation manager opened up his laptop and stepped up to the mic. Gabriel Sterling's mundane briefings on Georgia's wonky post-election counting processes became a ritual of stability. But yesterday, his address was one of righteous anger. It has all gone too far. All of it. In recent days, an attorney for the Trump campaign called for a former cybersecurity official to be drawn and quartered. Trump supporters drove caravans of honking pickup trucks past the Secretary of State's house, and someone sent sexually explicit threats to his wife. But the straw that broke Gabe Sterling's back came when social media users outed the information of a 20-something technician in Gwinnett County who they allege was manipulating vote totals as part of a grand conspiracy. In reality, he was checking numbers as part of a recount requested by the Trump campaign. I've got police protection outside my house. Fine. You know, I took a higher-profile job. I get it. Secretary ran for office. His wife knew that, too. This kid took a job. He just took a job. And it's just wrong. The forceful push from an election office led by Republicans comes as other prominent GOP leaders have largely stayed silent about the more threatening and extreme responses to Trump's election laws. Complicating matters is a dual Senate runoff that will decide control of the upper chamber. Both incumbents, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, have called on Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to resign, claiming without evidence there were widespread problems. Those kinds of calls have led to this harassment, Sterling said. You have to be responsible. You have to be responsible in your rhetoric. You have to be responsible in your statements. You have to be responsible in your deeds. That shouldn't be too much to ask for people who ask for us to give them responsibility. Very few Republicans have supported Raffensperger or made attempts to swat down conspiracy theories about Georgia's voting machine vendor and other elections processes. In his speech, Sterling said they're guilty, too. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. 
In response, both Purdue and Leffler said they condemn any sort of violence, but won't apologize for their harsh questioning of Georgia's election administration. The Trump campaign said in a statement that they were focused on, quote, ensuring that all legal votes are counted and that no one should engage in threats or violence. Ultimately, as the state finishes up a third count of its votes since Election Day, Sterling said it's incumbent on the president to move on, accept defeat, and tone down the rhetoric. Someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to get shot, someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. It's not right. Meanwhile, Republicans are also trying to convince their supporters the system works enough for them to vote in the January 5th runoff. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabain with a commentary. The nation's response to the COVID pandemic has been an episode of our history quite unlike anything that any of us have experienced before. Those who pay attention know that most of what has been proposed, done, and reported has been wrong, either because the science was incomplete and politicized, and or the news we received was purposed to serve a political agenda and not report what was really happening. And all of it continues to this very day. Americans remain misinformed and confused about literally every aspect of the COVID pandemic. Today, the news breathlessly reports on the new surge of infections, telling us how many recently infected joined the total number of U.S. COVID cases, which we are told are now north of 14 million. To add emphasis to the dire situation, we are further told that this is the largest number of COVID cases of any country in the world. On top of that, America's COVID death toll is the world's highest. The message is clear. The Trump administration has mismanaged the country's response to the pandemic, and it could have been otherwise. Begrudgingly, we are told that vaccines are coming, but there is no effective way to distribute them and properly prioritize who should be the first to be vaccinated. Our schools are to remain shut because we don't want to endanger our children or their teachers. Lockdowns on small businesses are prescribed all over the land for reasons no one can provide. The mantra, follow the science, should ring hollow in people's ears, for there is no definitive science that provides such backing. Returning to the number of reported COVID cases, it actually represents an erroneous estimate of the cumulative number of people infected by the virus during this year. The average person takes this number to be the number of people still ill and suffering, especially since that number is reported in conjunction with the latest mortality count. All of these millions remain in danger of losing their lives. The better red person knows that most of the infected are asymptomatic and therefore unknown to the counters. And of the symptomatic, the disease runs its normal course in two to four weeks during which you either overwhelmingly recover or rarely die. Furthermore, of the few who are symptomatic, a small fraction of those require hospitalization. What is not reported are the rates which put into perspective that we are a large and mobile nation of at least 330 million people. So what we need to hear is not the large G-Wiz numbers, but instead the rates of infection, hospitalization, morbidity, mortality, recoveries, etc., 
per hundred thousand or per million. Comparing America's raw numbers with those of smaller countries like Canada, Denmark, or Germany has sent the wrong but perhaps desired message to people deciding who to vote for during this election year. We should remember that reaching herd immunity, naturally or vaccine-aided, is how every infectious epidemic peters out and ends. Politically incorrect scientists have been telling us for months that the real number of COVID cases is enormously higher than those recorded by the healthcare establishment. It turns out, as reported in the prestigious journal Nature, that the real number of cases should include what is called seroprevalence. The seroprevalence survey of a population reveals the vastly larger number that have been exposed and available antibody testing data show that this number is over 50 times higher than those symptomatic and recorded clinically. This finding is so critical that the World Health Organization has now a program to establish seroprevalence rates worldwide. These important findings, based on already available data, indicate that the COVID mortality rates, instead of being in the reported 3% range, may actually be an order of magnitude lower, in the 0.2 to 0.3% range. This makes the COVID fatality rate closer to the flu season that we encounter annually. Recognition of this fact alone should impact response policies and eliminate business lockdowns, stay-at-home quarantines, and shuttered schools. There are many more important aspects of this pandemic that have been politicized beyond recognition. While there is not enough time in this short commentary for me to list them all, I strongly recommend listeners to look deeper into the reporting on the progress of the COVID pandemic and not base their understanding solely on what they hear on the mainstream media's daily 6 o'clock news. My name is Rebane, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rebane's Ruminations, where the addended transcript of this commentary is posted with relevant links and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you The Sages Among Us, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.